Good morning. As Billy mentioned, I used to be a pastor and I uh, worked at two great churches, really enjoyed my time at both, and then something happened to me. I got obsessed with this one piece of scripture. Uh, Jesus' last recorded prayer as a free man. It's found in John chapter 17. A lot of you know this text, this story. Jesus um, is sitting there in the garden and he begins to pray. He prays for himself, for what he's getting ready to go through. He prays for the disciples and then he prays for all of us. He prays for every believer that was alive at that time and every believer to come. And his prayer for us is that we would be one. He doesn't just pray for unity for the sake of unity. He prays for unity and he says that that when there's oneness among God's people, that in some beautiful, sacred, mystical way, people that don't know God get sucked towards him. And as I started to think and dwell on that prayer and on that text, I thought to myself, what if that's actually true? Like, What if Jesus meant that? What if one of the best things that we can do as believers to help other people come to know him is to simply be one? And I started to think about that a lot, and then some of my friends and I who are pastors in, in this uh, certain part, the northwest part of Denver, started to think about that. We started to, to pray and to ask this question, what is it that we could do together that we could never do alone? What would it look like if in a specific geographic area, that, that believers of all different tribes and kinds came together in, into order to make the kingdom tangible. And out of that, something very similar to, to OC United started to, to grow. A, a joint effort that was just simply focused on going out and, and making the kingdom tangible in our part of the city and serving um, some of the, the most uh, systemic issues so we got, and at first it's just all an idea, right? You're just kind of like sitting around brainstorming. And so we started to get excited about this idea and we decided, all right, we're going to stack hands and we're going to do this and each church is going to give a, a certain amount of time and resources. And there was only one problem. We didn't actually know what the smartest thing to do was in our city. We got really excited about the idea of unity, but when we started to look out at our community as pastors, we didn't. We weren't schooled up enough on, on the needs of our community to know what the most strategic thing to do was. And it's actually kind of an indictment if you're a pastor that you don't know that, but that, we got over that and we started to, uh, to have these meetings in which we invited the pastors to come and to gather and we would always invite a different civic leader. So we'd invite the city manager or the police chief or the mayor. And about six years ago, I was sitting in a room with 20-something lead pastors, and we're sitting there with our mayor. And we'd have these meetings. We'd always ask them two questions. Number one, what's your dream for our city? And number two, if you could take a magic wand and, and wave it and change something about our community, what would you change? And when we asked that second question, we were always looking for them, and we would get out our little pen and paper. So we're going to figure out what's our issue that we're going to go tackle together. So I'm sitting in this room with the mayor. He actually brought his wife that day, and we asked, say, hey, what's... What's your dream? And she cuts him off, his wife, and says, hey, I want to live in a city where nobody falls through the cracks. It's a great, it's like a, that's a great mission statement for a city, for a community, for a church. So we talked about that for a little bit. And then we got on to this next question, and, and we told him, what we're gonna, if you want to get people like this to show up to meetings, you have to like 
promise that you're not going to be weird and then tell him what you're going to ask him. And so we had told him the questions um, that we we're going to ask him. And so he pulls out this piece of paper and he starts reading down this list. He says, I, I want to live in a city where there's no elderly shut-ins. I, I want to live in a city where there's no at-risk kids, where there's no single moms who live below the poverty line. Like, and then there was like some weird stuff on there. He's like, I, we need a better newspaper. And we're like, um, we can't help you with that. That doesn't make any... Uh, but most of them are really good. So he, gets down, he reads this whole list of things and then he puts it in his pocket. And then just very much in passing, he says this. He said, you know... If you guys want to like, do the thing that, that would help the most, you should start some kind of a neighboring movement. And, and then he was just going like, to go on, like, what? And, and he said this, this amazing quote. He said to us, if the majority of the issues that our community are facing would be eliminated or drastically reduced if we could just become a community of people who are great neighbors... So he kept on kind of like, said, you know, we're just learning that like the more people are connected to each other um, based on proximity, the less weight there is on a lot of the systems that we're trying to juggle for people in need. You you can start a a new program for elderly shut-ins or that person in need can be cared for by the people who live right around them. We can start another boys and girls club for these kids who are missing uh, male or female role models that living in their home, or they can live in the type of neighborhood that, that, that has baked into the fabric of that community. He said this incredible line. He said, you know, we're, we're just learning that relationships always trump programs. And we're just sitting there Listening, we've been spending like a lot of time trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. do you, like, put yourself in that room for a minute. I want you to imagine what it feels like if you're a pastor, you make your living by helping people live out the text. Imagine what it feels like when God uses your mayor to tell you that the smartest thing, you know what all you guys should do? Why don't you do what, what Jesus said matters most? You know what that feels like? It feels horrible. It feels like you just get punched in the gut. And it was also a moment where we realized, like, God's up to something right here. I'll never forget. I'll never forget driving home that day from the meeting. I'm driving back into my suburban neighborhood, and I've got a ton of thoughts going through my head, but the two that I can remember right now are this. I just kept thinking to myself, Jesus is smart, Like, he's a genius. He gets asked to boil the entire text down to one thing. Is it possible that Jesus has given us a simple strategic plan that would literally change our city, our neighborhoods, our our world overnight if Christians actually did it? That was one thought. And the second thought I had was, I'm not doing it. Like, I'm driving back into my neighborhood a pastor. I'm involved in people's marriages, trying to help them figure out their life with their kids. I'm putting on outreach events. I was sitting on the boards of three different nonprofits, and I'm driving back into my neighborhood, and I'm realizing the amount of intentionality that, that I've put into the people who live right around me is almost nothing. And God just started to do something. 
And I went into my house and I, I told my wife, Lauren, I said, hey, like, you're not going to believe what happened. And my wife's always been ahead of me on most things, but also on this. And, and we just made a decision that day that we were going to do a one-year experiment that we were just going to say no to a few things, that we're going to try to be a little bit more present in our neighborhood, try to take the next small step and just see what happened. That, that one-year experiment, I was about six, it's, I'm six and a half years into that experiment, and it's totally screwed up my whole life in a really good, in a really profound way. And I, I'll come back and I'll tell you a little bit about that here in a few minutes, but let me tell you what happened to this group of pastors. So we get done with that meeting, we all kind of pray, and then we, we decide, all right, let's, let's think and reflect on what happened here, and then let's come back in two months. And so we've got this meeting in two months, and now I'd been going around, I'd been asking all these different civic leaders that magic wand question. I didn't like annoying them with the question, actually. And there was this one lady everybody would point me to, she was the assistant city manager, her name's Vicki Ryer, and she would, she would always say the same thing. She'd look at me and say, hey, Dave, you know what you should do? All those people that show up to all those churches, this isn't really relevant to this crowd. But she said, next time it snows, um, you should get them to actually shovel their neighbor's driveway. And when she would say it to me, I would just think to myself, nah, like I want something sexy, like something big, like, a, like we're going to like change something across the face of the city. And she just keeps telling me like this. Na- and so when the mayor said the neighboring thing, I just thought to myself, Vicky has this. So we invite Vicky to come to our next meeting, same group of people, and we're sitting there. And Vicky just comes in with all this incredible stuff about why neighboring really matters. And it's all very pragmatic. She shares with us that in neighborhoods where people know the first names of their neighbors, that the crime rate is 80% less. She talks to us about all of Malcolm Gladwell's research from the beginning of outliers around the fact that people live significantly longer when they're connected to the people who live right around them. The fact that when there's a crisis, your neighbor is almost always your first responder because the systems are always overwhelmed. And we're just sitting there listening to all this stuff, thinking to ourselves, that's good, that's good, that's really good. And in the back of our minds, we're thinking, and Jesus said that we should do this. And then, again, at, at the end of this meeting, there's, just this, there's this kind of catalytic moment that's incredibly convicting. She's sitting there talking to one of the pastors, and we're doing Q&A, and she just looks at the pastor, and, and she did not mean to be, like, horrible and, like, mean in this moment. We, did, we just took it that way. She, she just said, hey, she goes, hey, you don't think that, like, from where we sit at the level of the city that, that we can see a difference in the way Christians and non-Christians neighbor, do you? It felt so horrible to hear someone say that, that we started to argue with her about her perception. Like, whoa, that can't, that can't. Like our initial gut react. What's your initial reaction when you hear that? There's not, a, there's not a noticeable, there's not a drastic difference in the way Christians and non-Christians treat their actual neighbors in this city. How does that make you feel? Like, do you want to argue with it? I, I want to argue for you. I got to meet the, the police chief of Fullerton. Is he, hey, Dan, are you here right now? I didn't tell him I was going to do this to him. Where's Dan? Yeah, there he is. Back, Dan's a back row guy. Um, Dan, when you look out across the face of this city, when you guys are sitting in your meetings, talking about Fullerton, do you guys think to yourself, wow, the, 
the Christians in this city, they're the best neighbors in town. That's a no. <laughs> they're not having that conversation. Now, I think it's, I think it's really, really important for us to like, take a, a step back and to think about this. How do we reconcile the fact that, that Jesus says, if you only do one thing, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love your neighbors. How do we reconcile that with the fact that in our cities, in our neighbors, in our country, there's not a noticeable, drastic difference in the way Christians and non-Christians treat their actual neighbors? How do we make sense of that? I started, because of what happened to me, I started to ask that question, and I started to get mad and irritated. You ever think about the way things are, and you just like, starts to kind of agitate you? And then I, I started to ask this question. I, how, how do you end up as a pastor who's not intentional in his own neighborhood? And when I started to ask that question, I, I went from being like irritated to convicted and, and reflective. And I started to read through the text. I started to ask this question. I wonder how I ended up there. Like how, did, and I thought maybe, maybe if I could figure out how I ended up there, that, that like I could help other people figure out how they ended up there. Or maybe I could actually like do something about it and go and unravel some of the things that I had been thinking and doing. And I started to read the, these passages that I had read hundreds of times and they started to take on a new light. And I want, I want us to read one of them today. It's in Luke 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there. If you don't, we're going to have it up on the screen. This is a text, this is a story that, that you have read um, if you've been in church any amount of time. Um, it might be the story you've read the most. You might have heard 10, 20, 30 sermons about this story. I want to ask you to do something today. I want to ask you to take a step back, and I want you to try to like, see this with new eyes. Because that's what happened to me. I, started, I read this story... After all this stuff had happened, and, and just some light bulbs went off that had some serious implications for, for me and for my life. It's found in Luke 10. By the way, as I've shared my story with others, I've, I've come to believe that a lot of us have become inoculated to this story and to this text and to the principles. And I think that's a pretty big deal because Jesus says that what we're getting ready to like see here in this story is like the most important thing. Luke 10, 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Just think about how powerful just that one thought is right there. Do this and you will live. But look at this phrase. Look at at what happens here in verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This guy goes and asks a very straightforward question to Jesus. Jesus does this a couple times throughout the text. He gets the guy who's asking the question to answer his own question because he knew he already knew the answer and it wasn't about the question. So the guy gives the correct answer. Jesus says, that's right. Do that and you will live. 
And then look what he does. In order to justify himself, he asks Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This guy's first response is, where's the loophole? How do I get out of this? Jesus, neighbor, what does that really mean? His first thought is, I wonder if I I can define the word neighbor so that it most easily fits into what I'm already up to. Now, this is a story from 2,000 years ago. Totally different time and place. It, it, it's not that relevant to like what we're doing here. I mean, we're going to have to like take some huge leaps to get to where he is, right? None of us would actually like think about the idea of loving your neighbor and choose to define neighbor so that it most easily fits into what we're already up to. None of us would actually choose to live out the most important teaching of Jesus in a way that's convenient, Right? It's supposed to be a mild moment of kind of levity here. Um, Hey, you want to know how you can end up as a group of Christians who aren't known as the best neighbors in town? Do you want to know how you can end up as a pastor who's not engaged in their own neighborhood? All you got to do is this. All you got to do is define the word neighbor so that it most easily fits into what it's already up to. You, you don't have, I, I don't have time to get involved with my actual neighbors. I'm neighboring with these like, people on this nonprofit board. Uh, my, actually, the, the people I work with on church staff, that's my neighbor too. So, sorry I wasn't able to get to this other stuff. We're missing out on the most important teaching of Jesus because we found a more convenient way to interpret the text. Let me tell you how I, I've thought a lot about this. Let me tell you how I did this in my life. What happens next is fascinating, right, in this story? Jesus, the story? The guy goes, well, who's, who's really my neighbor? And she's like, oh, cool, we're gonna play this game. Here we go, okay? And he tells the story of the Good Samaritan. This is the story of the Good Samaritan says this, when you care for the person in front of you, you are being a neighbor to that person. How I interpreted that text for most of my life was, everybody's my neighbor. That's not what the text says. The text says, when you care for the person in front of you, your neighbor, that person, you are being a neighbor to that person. But, but you like that little mental gymnastics move? Everybody's my neighbor. And then check out this little move, okay? I'm doing a lot of good stuff, so I'm kind of just neighboring all the time. Right? Now, If you can make those two little moves, then, guess what? You just end up with a really, really powerful metaphoric love for your metaphoric neighbors, and metaphorically, you're killing it. And in real life, there's people who are sleeping 30 and 40 feet away from you, and you don't even know their names. When when we make everybody our neighbor, often nobody is. And we lose, we lose the power and the potency of the most important teaching of Jesus. And so what I've learned, and my friends are learning, is that good things happen when the people of God draw a circle around the places that God has put them and begin to work out from there. 
The Good Samaritan text, Jesus looks at him and says, listen, he, he blows up the definition of neighbor on the guy, but he's assuming that, that he's neighboring with the, same, the people of the same culture and same customs, right? He's, he gives them like the AP version of neighboring. That's what the story of the Good Samaritan is. In light of where we are, like in, in light of the fact that like we're not known as the best neighbors in town, like, like in light of the fact that like in your police department's not having like that thought ever. Maybe we don't need like the AP version right now. Maybe we actually could like just go back to kindergarten. Like what if we just went back to the basics? Now, so I'm stop for a second because I know that some of you in this room might be thinking to yourself, Dave, I like you're, one, you're not exegeting that text very well. Um, number two, like I, I spend more time at work than I do in my neighborhood. And I'm building relationships there, and that's a neighboring. And Dave, I, I just went over, I was just on a, on a mission trip with this church, and we were just in, in Sudan, and we did this great thing. That's neighboring. Dave, like, I, I'm pouring into these relationships at this group with this coffee shop, these, these parents on my kid's soccer team, and that's neighboring. And if you're having that thought, that thought's crossed your mind at all right now, I want to tell you something. You're 100% right. Of course, Jesus defines that as being a neighbor to that person. Of course, that counts. But here's the deal. It doesn't somehow, all of that doesn't somehow magically make the people who live right around you not your neighbors. There's no like magic fairy dust that makes that happen. And I lived most of my life like that was the case. And I think most of us have lived most of our lives like that is the case. And it's not okay. It's a cop-out. It's a loophole. And if we want to take all the theology, and the, like, like what, what, if, what if we actually started to do like the most basic thing that the text says to do? What would happen? What would happen? In our country, our cities. What would happen on our block so as we started, our little group of pastors, we started to like think about this and, and dream about this. Um, we, we fell backwards into something that, that I want to do with you. We're going to do like, a, I'm going to do a little quiz with you. This, I'm going to do a little exercise with you. And I want to tell you something. This, this thing that we're getting ready to do changed my city. This is like a hundred times more powerful than the book. This is like a really simple thought. And it's the real deal. So I just want you to do this with me really quick. We're going to do a little exercise in service and just kind of see what happens. So take, you ever got, everybody got one of these when you walked in, right? I want you to, to just imagine for a second that you walk outside your condo, your apartment, townhome, your, your suburban home, your urban home, whatever it is. Just imagine you walk outside your front door. I want you to think about the eight closest households to you or units, whatever they are. And I want you to take a second right now. I want you to write down the name. Let's just do the names of the adults. You got a pen right in front of you there. The, the, write down the names of the adults in the eight closest households or units to you right now. Start writing them in there. I know your block doesn't look like this. Just kind of imagine those eight. Put them in there. Don't cheat. Don't talk to your spouse okay, or your roommate, whoever you live with. Like, actually, just what can you do from memory right now? Do not write down annoying lady. Okay? 
do not write down like dude who drives a blue car, okay? Like real people's names. How many real people's names can you put in these boxes? When I did this for the first time, I could fill in the adult, both adults' names in two of these boxes. How many of you right now, how many of you can write down both adults, if, if two adults live there, both adults' names in five or more of the boxes? Would you raise your hand just so I can see? Okay. It's like 30% of the room. That's what first service had too. By the way, that's high. 30% of the room. I want you to know something. I've never been in a room of Christians where more than half of the room can write down the names of five or more, of more than half of this grid. About 8% of people can fill out all eight of Christians and non-Christians because it turns out the studies show that there is not currently a noticeable difference. Let me tell you why I think this matters. My buddy who wrote the book with me likes to say this. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not a poet. I don't get paid to write song lyrics. I'm not an expert on love, but I do know this. In order to love somebody, it's helpful to know their first name. Uh, you like that? Let me tell you what happened to me because of this little, this little tic-tac-toe board. My wife took it, and it was a napkin. It was just sitting up on our fridge, and I had those two filled in. And I've got a lot of weird, unhealthy, competitive stuff inside of me. And so I looked at that thing, and I said, I'm going to do something about that. And the next day, I was sitting out in my front yard, and one of my neighbors... Who, who is a blank spot, is mowing his lawn. And I thought to myself, all right, this is my chance. I, this, right now, I'm going to go do this. And now I have this other thought. And this is going to happen to you. Like the number of thoughts that come into your head in this moment are incredible. It's going to happen to you. You're going to, like I thought to myself, I, I can't, he's mowing his lawn. I can't go like right in the middle while he's mowing it. That's weird. And I thought, well, I'll, I'm just going gonna, gonna to make up something to do in my front yard. And I'll wait. And I, that's, that's more weird right there. I, I'm going to go back into my house, and then I'm going to come out, and, and I'll probably get it at the right time. And so you have this moment where you have to make a decision if you're going to lean into a mildly awkward moment. By the way, the common characteristic of good neighbors is that they, they have courage to lean into a mildly awkward moment. And I remember I took that first step, and I walked down my driveway, and I walked across, and he started, he's like, I didn't see him, he's like looking at me, he's like, what it? What are you doing? You're not running. You're not running. This is not an emergency. And I walked up his driveway and he stopped. I said, hey, man. Um, Because that was my name for him. My other neighbor is bro. And so, hey, man. Hey, this is like really embarrassing. I've lived next to you for 18 months. I've met you three times. I forgot your name. I said, I'm Dave. And he said something horrible. He said, I know. Um, and I was like, I'm Matt, and it's Jan. 
And we, we, it was like a 20-second conversation. And I went back inside my house, and I did something really important. And I, and I wrote it down. And pretty soon, this thing that was all blank was all filled in. And there's all kinds of white noise stuff on my fridge for some reason I don't look at. Look at. But I, I started to look at this thing. And all of a sudden, these went from people who had faces and, and, and drove certain types of cars to like real people with real names and real stories. And God started to do something inside me. They started to get inside of my thoughts. They started to get inside of my prayers. And it went from, hey, man, to, hey, Matt, to, hey, Matt. What are, you, what are you guys doing for the Broncos game? Now, again, I know that's not culturally relevant here because you guys don't have an NFL team. Um, <laughs> all your work, oh yeah, we're gonna do this weird thing where you're gonna, we're gonna bring them, we're gonna do this again, right? We're gonna come back, have one for a little bit, and then we'll be, um, so anyway, so, but for me, for my city, where people like care about such, such things, that's like a culturally relevant thing to talk about. So, so, Went from there to, I'm going to lose you. Uh, went from there to then, um, hey, Matt, I've got this thing I just need to move in my garage. It's like, like 30 feet. Could you give me a hand? To, hey, what are, you, what are you and Jan doing for the game? Do you guys want to come over and watch it? To sitting across a dining room table, sharing a meal, talking about the things that we care about, Talking about the things that, that have made us who we are. Having the kinds of conversations that I had been dreaming about having with people. But had never making a way and, and done the hard work to have. And none of that happens if you don't learn their name. Learning, retaining, and using somebody's name. It's the difference. It's a, it's a small thing, but it's the difference between somebody being a stranger or an acquaintance. And oftentimes when we learn a name, it's, a, it's like taking this one small step in it on this moving sidewalk. And, and, and these other dominoes start to fall over time in a very normal way. Sometimes we learn a name and that's it. Sometimes, some of my neighbors don't want to be my friends. They're just really busy and they want to get home and get their garage door up and get their car in and get it down and detox from their day and then do it all over again. And I have a lot of grace for that because I used to live like that. But some of my neighbors are dying for real relationship. Most of my neighbors, all they have is like these weird dysfunctional relationships with their family like we all do. And then these surfacey work relationships and their amount of like friendships and relationships of depth is either low or non-existent. And as I've just leaned a little bit towards them, God's just begin to open up door after door after door. And I'd love to sit up here and tell you it's just really easy and you just learn a name and then take the next step. It's, it's incredibly messy. And it's really hard. And you'll also never want to go back. I, like the only thing I can think of it, it's like having kids, right? That's how I think about my kids. <laughs> it's so hard, and I don't ever want to go back. Something sacred, something really beautiful happens when, when we, when the people of God, begin to, to think and to act like this. 
Are, are you willing to take the next small step? And for a lot of us from, with that, just seeing the hands, are you willing to take the next small step? Would you be willing to, to take this and begin to just learn and retain and use and just have a few mildly awkward conversations and then after this thing is filled in and just say, God, what, what's one small step with one of those people that you want me to take? And then actually do it. Can you imagine the impact that happens when a church like this actually does that? Can you imagine what that looks like? There's... 2,500 households that call this church home. That means 20,000 households would be touched if every single one of you said, you know what, I'm going to do that thing. I'm going to take the next small step. Let's just guess low. Let's say there's three people in each of those households. 60,000 people, 60,000 individuals to be touched by this church alone. Not to mention all the incredible things that you're doing with OC United and a number of the others throughout this community. By, by doing something that is really attainable, I, I've, um, I've learned a lot in the last few years walking down this road. But one of the things that I've learned, probably the biggest leadership lesson I've learned is this. My, my whole life people told me, Dave, good leaders set the bar high. If you set the bar high, people will get close to it or they'll get over it and good things happen. And that might be true if we're talking about a small team of people. What I've learned is this, though. When it comes to movements, the key isn't to set the bar high. The key is to set the bar so low that people are ashamed not to step over it. Now, I don't want you to be motivated by shame. I'd rather be motivated by conviction. You know, but whatever it takes. Um... But what we're doing here today is this. The bar's really low, people. Would you just be willing to learn and retain and use the names of the people who live around you and then just say, God, I'm, I'm open. What's that? We're not, ask, we're not asking you to become best friends with all these people. We are asking you to take the thing that Jesus said matters most and, and just to be willing to do it. And here's the, the great news. Like, this, you guys are wired for it here. The leadership here bleeds this stuff. This isn't some like, let's just roll in some guest speaker from Denver and have him like do a one-off. Like, you guys have talked about this before. We're talking about it here today, and you're going to keep talking about it. In fact, if you want to know a next step, another next step, uh, this next week, there's going to be three different trainings, two-hour trainings. You want to go a little bit deeper? You want to lean in a little bit farther? You just want to be, I found it really helpful to be around people who are like, have stories of success and failure in this journey. And there's going to be people at those like this. So on the back of this, there's just some dates there on the 20th, 23rd, 24th. If you want to, if you want to lean in just a little bit farther, you want to start getting a few more tools to be a part of this. But for right now, would you, would you be willing to make a commitment They've asked me to come in to challenge you in that way. And so there it is. It sits before you, and as you get in your cars and you drive on today, one of the great things about what we've just talked about is that you can, you can actually do it. And so I'll be praying as you encounter mildly awkward moments, as all those excuses come flying into your head, I'll be praying for you and for this church as a whole and for the impact 
that's going to happen as a result. Let's pray. God, thanks for this incredible command that has the potential to do so much for us and for those that live around us. God, would you give us a passion, a desire to take the great commandment literally and seriously? God, help us, help us make time to build relationships with the people that you've placed right around us. And, and God, give us the courage to live the kind of lives that you want us to live. In your name, amen.